Hello and welcome to Quick Looks from the Long View. This is episode number 10, which is being recorded on Sunday, the 22nd of November, 2015. In this episode, uh, Lloyd and I are going to be taking a look at a few new titles. Uh, first off, we're going to be taking a look at a pair of titles from Spielworks games. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at Deluvia Project and Haithabu, uh, two brand new titles from Spielworks. And after that, we're going to take a look at another great Dr. Finn game called Cosmic Run. So that's what's on tap for today. Uh, I, of course, want to say uh, thank you to my sponsor, Gamesurplus.com. Uh, thanks to them for their generous and continued support of the Longview. And if you like the sound of any of these games, please be sure to check with them first at Gamesurplus.com. Velma's prices are unbeatable. Their customer service is fantastic. And if she doesn't have it in stock, she'll get it for you and then get it shipped off to you lightning fast. So find out why Game Surplus is always my first choice when it comes to buying board games online. That's Gamesurplus.com. I also want to send a shout out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, the Gamer's Edge is a great resource for board gamers in the region. They have a wonderful amount of space that's open for you. You can go by any time and find a table and get a game going. There's always people hanging around. Uh, they have a huge number of board games in stock all the time getting new titles. Uh, they have a wonderful selection of CCGs, LCGs. They have comic books. They have video games. They've got it all at the Gamer's Edge on Main Street in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. So if you're in the northeastern PA region... Take a ride down Interstate 80 and uh, stop off at Main Street in Stroudsburg. You'll find not only a wonderful time at the Gamer's Edge, but lots of other great stores and shops. And remember this holiday season to shop local. That's the Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, my name is Jeff Gamble, and as usual, I am joined for the Quick Look episodes here by none other than Lloyd Keller. Lloyd, I'd like you to say uh, hello today. Um, let's see. Why don't we have you say hello as a rabid Star Wars fan who overslept on December 18th? Hi, what time is it? I, I think I need to... Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, the line is going to be too long. I got these tickets six weeks ago. With, ah, I'm going to miss the premiere. My life is over. There you go. There you go. And the Oscar goes to... Not you. Not um, me. Hopefully somebody from the Star Wars movie. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Let's see if we can calculate the probability of that. I think the answer to that is probably going to be Zippo. Um, science fiction movies uh, have never really gotten a whole lot of uh, cred as far as uh, Oscars go. And uh, sometimes with good reasons, uh, you know. I think about growing up, and you know, before the whole Lord of the Rings, you know, when I remember the original Wrath of the Titans, yep. <laughs> just some of the worst acting. What is it? What, what was oh, the stupid mechanical little owl? That was that was terrible. And then, <laughs> and then they had what was that other movie that like the dragon something dragon slayer with the dude like with the blonde curly hair, and it, oh, it was terrible. The acting, it was like these people. We're just, it's like they spent all their money on the special effects. We're like, we're gonna we're gonna hire some dude named Chuck. He's gonna be our lead, and he couldn't act his way out of a box. Um, and then you know, like the Lord of the Rings movies came, you know, and and of course we had Alien and all that, you know, those mm -hmm. movies where we had some real quality acting for the first time. And uh, now we got you know great movies uh, all the time, but they never seem to get a lot of Oscar credit. I'll be curious to see if The Martian. I haven't seen it yet. But I've heard it was an incredible movie. So I'll be curious whether Star Wars uh, or The Martian or, or something like that ends up getting some uh, actual cred. Well, 
we've digressed long enough, I think, Lloyd, talking about... Uh, Star Wars! Wonderful Star Wars! No, no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Who's that? Bill Murray on Saturday Night Live yeah, yeah, doing that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Star Wars! You have to really, like, you have to laugh. Wonderful Star Wars! Yeah, 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 that was terrible, wasn't it? <laughs> Nothing but Star Wars coming your way! <laughs> hey! Hey! All right. <laughs> Well, now that everybody has turned off the episode, we can now. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about some titles today. Um, we have uh, first up, we have uh, Deluvia Project, which is from Spielworks. Uh, this is a title that I've been aware of for a little while. Um, I've had the chance to play it. Oh man, a lot of times now. I'd probably say close to ten times. Um, uh, we had a kind of kind of got my hands on an early uh, copy, an early release copy of it. Uh, played the heck out of it. Um, discovered I was playing a few rules wrong, uh, as always is the case with a complicated game. Uh, played it some more. Uh, discovered I had another rule wrong. <laughs> <laughs> played it again. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, um, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the rules later. But uh, all right, so this is a game uh, that was just put out. Uh, it's a really interesting kind of a game. It is uh, from Spielworks. It is for two to four players. Designed by Alexandre, uh, Alexander or Alexandre Garcia. Um, the artist listed is Harold Leisky. Um, this game is uh, listed for about 120 minutes, and I would say that is totally accurate. Might be even a little bit longer than that, especially on your first play. And it's listed as kind of like a city building, territory building, tile placement, worker placement kind of a game. Uh, all of those things I would say would be true. Um, what the game is, is the theme is kind of interesting or bizarre, depending on how you look at it. Um, we have run out of room on Earth, um, which is not the bizarre part. <laughs> I think that's uh, unfortunately um, becoming more and more a, a real concern. Uh, and so what uh, engineers have decided is we need to build up. We need to build, uh, speaking of Star Wars, uh, like the city in the clouds. Right? I saw we, city in the clouds. Yes, I saw city in the clouds. Han and Leia, they were hurt. <laughs> they were in pain. They were in pain. They were <laughs> suffering. <laughs> the future it is, you see. <laughs> nice. Anyway, so Deluvia Project is you are building one of these cloud cities, okay? And they kind of already have the basic structure down for you. Um, you kind of have this grid, which is the main part of the board. And the grid is nicely kind of color-coded, depending on whether you're playing with two players, three players, or four players. In that uh, the, the more players, the larger the playing surface or the playing area is going to be, which is really nice. I, I really appreciate that. And they kind of give you this idea that, like, okay, you th this platform is kind of up there. Um, the basic parts of it, right? There's like these propellers. Like I, I kind of likened it to uh, Marvel Avengers, like the helicarriers, right? Yeah. So you see these like big propellers that are kind of keeping it in the air and just this kind of blank template, okay? And so what you're trying to do during the game is you're trying to acquire property or I don't think of it so much as property, but you're like earmarking space on this platform for you to build and everybody must start in the center, okay, and build out from there. And it kind of thematically might make a little bit of sense. You know, you want to kind of keep things balanced and level. So everybody kind of starts in the center around this central kind of turbine. And then there's turbines all around uh, the platform at various locations, kind of equidistant apart from each other. And you're going to be kind of like earmarking, almost like kind of like getting a uh, permit or whatever to build in locations. You're going to be marking kind of property, 
um, and then you're going to be building buildings uh, on those locations. And uh, as the city builds, you are going to be gaining income. You're going to be gaining income uh, perhaps in money. You're going to be gaining income in resources. And you're going to be gaining incomes in, in what's called prestige. And so there's, there's really kind of like three different economies that you kind of have to manage in this game, which is one of the things that makes it interesting. And we'll talk about that later. Um, once you kind of uh, uh, have the board set up for all the players, what you're going to do is uh, you are going to take turns and you have a certain number of workers. They're just little wooden discs. And you have uh, your starting workers and then you have like a super worker. Okay, This is like your dude who's like your foreman or he's like the dude in charge or whatever. And when he goes to work, like, you know, extra stuff gets done, right? He's like super efficient Bob as opposed to like Chuck who's like really lazy <laughs> and he kind of works, but he doesn't, whatever, right? So you've got like your super worker and your regular workers. And the neat thing about this game is there's all of these different places where you can place your workers. So you can use your workers to gain income, uh, just get money. You can use your workers to claim property, like to get your permits. You can use workers to build buildings. You can use workers to build parks. You can use workers to, um, when you build, you can also kind of like claim a propeller or like, I kind of think of it as like, I'm going to take that over. I'm going to maintain that. I'm going to manage that. Um, you know, that, that big turbine to keep this whole city afloat. It's mine. You know, it's like the adopt a highway program. <laughs> it's like, if you're willing to do that, then, you know, you've got that. Um, and then there's also, uh, places where you can go, um, that, that are going to, uh, give you other benefits as well. One of the main benefits is kind of shifting your production. And we're going to change, uh, we're going to talk about that later because that's how you change your production engine in this game. So, what you're going to do is you're going to place your workers in any of these regions when it's your turn. And the cool thing about it is you can place one worker or you can place a bunch of workers. So like if you have five workers, you could conceivably dump all five of them and just make a lot of money. Or you could, you know, put just a couple there, right? And most of these areas have this sort of sliding scale of cost benefit. So uh, for example, let's use money since we've been talking about that. If I put one worker down, I'm going to get a dollar. If I put two workers down, I'm going to get $2. If I put three workers down, I'm going to get $3 plus a bonus dollar for having at least three workers there. So I'm actually going to get four for three, okay? And then if I use my super worker, if I use Bob, and I put Bob down, Bob gets me a bonus of uh, another uh, plus two. So actually, if I put Bob down by himself, I get one because he's a worker and two because he's Bob. So I get three for one, which is awesome. But each region on the board can only have the special uh, worker activate that bonus once per complete kind of game turn. And so what that means is if I use Bob in income, say I put out three workers, one of which is Bob. So I'm going to get $3 plus one for the three. Okay, the bonus, because I put out at least three workers, plus two more. So I'm going to end up with three plus one plus two. So I'm going to end up with six, six bucks. bucks. Yeah. Then if you want to go and place uh, workers in income, you could place your Bob. Okay, but the bonus has already been given out. And so he's just going to function as a normal worker, right? Otherwise, you can just put out your regular workers and you get whatever benefits you would normally get. And so players are going to be placing their workers. You're going to keep going around the table in player order until everybody has placed all of their workers and has basically passed at that point because there's nothing more you can do. 
Um, and so this leads to another really interesting part of the game. Um, there's a, uh, the, the other one I forgot about was the resource market. There's a resource market where you can place workers, where you can get the, the kind of resource cubes that you need to build the buildings. There's the property one. There's the park one. There is the shifting your kind of economic engine one. There's the building, either buildings or propeller one. There's the income one. And then there's also another one that is going to let you buy tiles that are kind of special power tiles at a fixed price um, from a display at the top corner of the board. Now, we haven't talked about that yet, but that display is actually a huge part of the game because uh, at the very top cor uh, corner of the board, there's a grid where you're going to be putting out tiles at the start of every round. These tiles are going to be auctioned, and the auction works in a really interesting way. Each player has a little marker. It's supposed to look like kind of a Zeppelin. And you put the Zeppelin out, either in a column or a row. And every tile that is in front of that Zeppelin, you are going to have the ability to buy. And the first one costs you one, the second one costs you two, the third one costs you three, etc. Okay, all the way up to, I think, a fifth tile. So the fifth one would cost you five, and then four, and then three, two, one, or is it only four? I think it was only four. It was only four? I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't have the board in front of me. But um, you're going to be able to buy as many of those tiles as you want. However... If someone had placed a Zeppelin, like let's say I placed mine in a row and there were tiles there, but then you placed your Zeppelin in a column pointing downwards. If you go in turn order before me, you're going to actually have the opportunity to buy the tile that is at the intersection of that row and column before I get the chance to do it. So if that happens, I'm kind of out of luck. I can't buy that tile, but I get a kind of a consolation prize of a dollar for every vacant space when I go to pick my tiles. So if other people have kind of come in and poached my tiles, I'm going to get some income. And income is extremely tight in this game. So that's not mm -hmm. anything that's kind of in, you know, that that's a that's a fairly important thing. Uh, I almost said like inconceivable again, which was inconsiderable. Inconce Remember that was last time. And I, I don't think that word, that was last time. Figure it out. I still can't get that word right. Anyway. Incomprehensible. It no. is. No, it's not. No. Incom <laughs> it's not inconsequential is the word I was looking for. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so anyway. You start off by doing this tile auction. You can buy as many of them as you want. These tiles are either going to give you a one-off kind of a benefit, like you might get some cubes, or you might get some straight kind of prestige, or you could get a special tile that's going to give you a bonus. Like when you build buildings of a certain type, you pay less resources or something like that. Um, there's all of these really interesting tiles. So first you do the auction. And you see what you, you kind of have. That's kind of a lot of times your long-term strategy is determined by those tiles. And then after that, then you're going to do all that worker placement that we've already talked about. When you're done all of the worker placement, then you're going to kind of do a cleanup phase. You're going to refill that market, uh, you know, the tiles in the market. You're going to open up sort of the next age or the next turn. Uh, every turn, a new set of buildings becomes available. And then you're just going to proceed and you're going to keep playing until you go through all of the rounds in the game. Um, the buildings get larger physically and they get more powerful as the game goes on. So a level one building is going to give you a nice benefit. It might give you a cube every turn in income or two prestige every turn or something like that. But the later buildings might give you three cubes or six dollars or, you know, they're going to give you a lot. Okay. So... There's definitely an escalation in the benefit of the buildings as the game goes on, which of course is fun because you get that feeling of things ramping up. So all of this then takes place, and at the end of the game, what you're going to do is you're going to take a look and you're going to see who has the most 
population. And what that means is this is now another, this is a fourth type of currency. I think of population as a currency as well. I haven't mentioned it before. It's because it's the hardest thing to wrap your mind around. So basically the theme is you're trying to build all this stuff in the city to attract people to want to come and live there. Whoever does the best job of attracting population is going to ultimately be the winner of the game. So how do you attract population? You attract population with prestige. So they hear about these great things. They hear about these wonderful buildings. They hear about this park in the sky. And they think, wow, this is amazing. And I want to go check that out. I want to go live there, right? So what happens is every time you build a building on the, on the central grid, on the city of Deluvia Project, okay, you are going to uh, take a benefit. There are two different benefits on every building. One of them usually has to do with just straight production of, of prestige. The other has to do with resources or money or something of that nature. You get to choose when you build the building which engine you want to activate, okay? So early in the game, most people are going for money and they're going for resources. But later in the game, they're probably going to want to go for prestige. What you really want to think about, though, is a balance because the way this works is every time I put a building out, I'm going to take a little marker on my individual player board that looks like a little house from Settlers of Catan, mm -hmm. and I'm going to move it forward one space. So if I built three buildings, my house is going to be on position three. Why that's important is because every time I can produce enough prestige to get a multiple of 10... I'm going to then score population equal to the number of the kind of where my house is on my player board. So if my house is on position three, every time I hit a multiple of 10, I'm basically going to score three points to win the game. Okay. Um, if I can get that house uh, you know, marker up to five or six or seven, like really get it up high, every time I hit a multiple of 10, I'm going to be scoring five or six or seven points wherever that house marker is. So that's a huge, huge part of the game is trying to figure out the balance between resources in, which let me build the buildings so that I can then score um, my prestige and have the population score and managing my money and everything else that's going on, making sure I have property to build on, um, all of these things. And of course, the game also gives you incentives and rewards and population point for keeping up with the Joneses, I call it, right? So if it's turn three and level three buildings have just come out, well, then you're going to get a bonus for building a level three building, okay? You're going to get two population points for doing that. It's like, wow, okay, cool. So there's a ton of moving parts in the game. Um, and, and you're going to kind of continue to try to produce your resources, produce your money, but then you're also going to try to produce prestige. Now, here's the tricky part. There's two types of prestige in the game. There's the prestige that you mark off on your own individual player board. And this is what is going to, at the end of every single round, it's going to move you forward. Okay, after everybody has passed, you kind of do a scoring. You take your income in cubes. You take your income in money. You see where your house marker is. And then you're going to score prestige. But here's the kicker. Prestige, a lot of times, there's a, it's tough because some prestige is scored as a one-time bonus on the main score track moving you towards one of those multiples of 10. Other prestige is marked on your player board. So if my player prestige marker is at four on my player board, okay, 
And I, as one of my actions, I take possession or I agree to maintain one of the turbines. That turbine gives me six prestige points, but it gives me six prestige points on the main board. So I move that marker up six, but I don't move it on my player board. What moves me on my player board is by selecting the production option of prestige points on buildings that I've built. And so what ends up happening is you have to be really careful that you're keeping in mind which type of um, prestige we're talking about. For example, if I um, uh, build a building of the appropriate age, we're in, we're, we're in, level, we're in turn four, age four, and I build a level four building, I score two prestige points for doing that. But it doesn't go on my player board, it goes on the main board. So there can that's a little tricky, and, and we might return to that later to talk a little bit about that. But basically the bottom line is you need to try and track your prestige and your resources. And then every time that prestige marker, the big marker on the main board, passes a multiple of 10, then you score your population points. And population points is what wins you the game. So there's a ton to think about in this game. There's a lot that is just really engaging it keeps your attention. You're always focused on what other people are doing. There's tons of rules I haven't even covered, like adjacency rules and where can you build and, and you know, can you do things diagonally? The answer is yes, you can like claim properties diagonally, but you have to respect the shape of the building when you build. There's all kinds of exceptions. But for a quick look here, I just wanted to kind of give a general overview. And so I think I've pretty much hit all of the major parts. The, the last things I want to talk about are, I want to talk about with you, Lloyd, the things about the game that we really enjoyed, that we really thought were a lot of fun, very engaging. And then I also want to talk about the things that, uh, the problems or issues we had with the game, which uh, we'll circle back to that later. For me, it was almost all production and component kind of problems, not so much gameplay problems. So, um, Lloyd, I've talked for a while now. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your impressions of playing this game and what you liked or didn't like or what you found engaging, etc.? I can definitely tell you what I liked about this game. Um, as you had already mentioned, one of the, the most unique things to me about this game Sure, it's a worker placement. I've played worker placements before. Sure, you're trying to build buildings and, you know, you're trying to, like you said, acquire property. Uh, that's, that's not really that new. But the whole idea of being able to switch kind of midway through the game what type of engine you're using, whether you're collecting those resource cubes and money or whether you're just going straight for those prestige points. That is such a unique idea because... It almost gives you like a catch-up mechanic if you're starting to fall behind. And I know that sounds weird because for those of you that are listening that have maybe played a couple of Spielworks games, uh, they can be very unforgiving. If you're not familiar with the rules and the gameplay, you can almost sometimes count yourself out by like the third or fourth round of a Spielworks game because you're just so far out of it that you really don't have much of a chance to catch back up. But with the Deluvia Project... Because you're allowed to change what you're collecting from every single one of your buildings, it's it's really fascinating. And it worked really well. Like the first time that I got to play it a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was a four-player game. And the fella that ended up winning the game, he was in last place for almost the entire game. He didn't have all of his workers I mean, it was really kind of interesting. He did a lot of things that 
in any other game would have kept him in last place, except for the fact that at the right point in the game, he stopped collecting all this money because he had a huge stack of money. He had more money than he needed for the rest of the game. He stopped collecting those resource cubes because, again, he had more resource cubes than he knew what to do with. He switched all of his buildings over to just purely getting that prestige, and now all of a sudden, his prestige marker was moving like 15 to 20 spots at the end of every round. And it was incredible because now he was suddenly just generating all these additional population points because he wasn't scoring once or twice. Sometimes I think there was one or two points where he actually got to score three different times because he passed over three consecutive multiples of 10 because of how he was positioned. I mean, it was incredible. And I've never seen a game where you could be in last place and just very subtly and quickly switch gears in one round and all of a sudden now you're in contention for first place yeah and yeah. it's just it was totally fascinating to me yeah and and that's one of the neat things about the game is because you can position yourself with your prestige so that you are right about to hit a 10 and then you know you can real quickly score prestige for um building a, a turbine and that'll take you over and, and initiate, a, you know, a scoring. And then, you know, you can then build uh, a, a building of the appropriate age. That scores you two. And then you get a bonus if you use your super worker, Bob, okay, when you build buildings. And that gives you a prestige bump. And that's okay, so there's a second scoring. And then when you score your prestige on your personal mat at the end, well, now I've hit it a third time this round. Or, you know, so there's all these kinds of opportunities <clears throat> to try and kind of, you know, sneak up on people and be very clever about how you score. And that's actually, I was I was playing in that game that you were just referring to. It, you know, we were all playing that, and uh, I missed hitting another scoring by one. Right. And if I had hit another scoring, you know, that would have given me like another nine points or something, and then I, I would have I would have won, but I, I couldn't do it. And that was thanks and to me, so, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks to you. It Absolutely. totally was. So, that's a really neat part of the game. And I want to go back to that engine shifting that you're talking about because usually in games like this, I mean, it's not new to have this idea that, okay, when I build a building, I can produce this or I can produce that. That's not that's not new. What was new to me, what I really enjoyed about it is the fact that, as you said, during the game, one of those worker spaces you can go to will allow you to take two of your buildings and shift their production. And if you use Bob, you can shift on three, one, yeah. you know? And so there will come that point in the game, and you really do. You feel like you're driving a car, and then you just shift gears, you know? And you shift gears, and now all of a sudden you're all about the prestige, baby, right? And so your prestige marker jumps way up on your board because you're producing, you know, a ton of prestige every single time. And remember where that house marker is. So that house marker is at the 7 or the 8 or the 9 or something like that. You can get it way up there. Then what ends up happening is, hey, if I'm producing this massive amount of prestige then I, I really legitimately could score several times during the course of a round, and, and that's huge. So, you know, I think that's one of the fascinating parts of the game. I think the <clears throat> opportunities for blocking is fun. One of the rules that we didn't talk about is when you claim a turbine, um, normally you have to kind of build adjacent to yourself. You have to build connected in some way. When you claim property, you have to kind of claim it uh, in a way that is going to be still connected to what you have built. Um, and then you also are going to get a bonus if you put parks. If you have a park 
and it's kind of surrounded by your buildings, you're going to get bonus points according to the size of the buildings surrounding the park. And so that's a really great way to score uh, at the end of the game as well. That's really important. But uh, the thing I like is that if you kind of feel like you're a little boxed in or you're not going to be able to claim enough property to, say, build one of those big four-by-four four kind of buildings, those huge buildings, okay, at the end where you basically need a, a four grid, okay, so you need like four uh, pieces of property all connected in a square, um, you can buy yourself one of those turbines, and that's then going to allow you to start building out from that turbine. So like you can't really be totally cornered in this game. You can be messed with, but you can't be totally cornered. And that's something else that I really like about it quite a bit. So from a gameplay standpoint, I think this game is a lot of fun. It's really crunchy and thinky, but not necessarily because the rules are complicated, because the decisions that you're going to be making are really complicated. They're really difficult. And that's what I really like about this game. Uh, a lot of the time I'm just sitting there with my head, you know, I'm kind of like with my fingers at my temples and I'm just kind of staring at that board and trying to think about what am I going to do? You know, how, how's this going to work? Or someone takes, you know, uh, their, their Super Bob takes that, that extra benefit. I'm like, dang it, you know, I needed two white cubes, not just one. You know, and now that Super Bob's taken it, I don't have two workers take two white cubes. I only had one. I was planning on using my dude to get the two that I need. Now I can't. What do I do? So there's all kinds of uh, tactical decisions as well as strategic decisions. I really like the balance of strategy and tactics in this game. and think it's a lot of fun. So um, overall, I'm very, very happy with this game. I'm happy to play it, and I'm happy to suggest it to anybody. That being said... There's a few issues that I have with the game. Um, the first one is that some of the tiles in that auction are extraordinarily powerful. And this reminds me a little bit of other titles from Spielworks, which you mentioned earlier. You know, Spielworks games can be very unforgiving. If you, They remind me of splatter games in that regard. Yeah. If you screw up you're probably, you're not going to get back in. Now, you might be able to get back in the way you described, but a lot of times you're not, you know? And, and in a splatter game or in a Spielworks game, sometimes you just have to kind of wrap your mind around the fact that, like, I'm going for second because it's going to be pretty clear who's going to win. And one of the ways that can happen is if the players at the table are new to the game and they're playing with somebody experienced or if somebody just lucks into it, there is a tile that gives you a, uh, what is it, a two-cube discount every time you build a level two or three building. And then there's another one that gives you a two-cube discount every time you're building a level four or level five. Well, cubes in this game are ridiculously hard to come by. Uh, resource cubes are not easy to get. And so if you end up snagging both of those tiles, as a matter of fact, the game that Lloyd and I were talking about earlier that we played, that came up. They were right next to each other in the same row. In the initial setup. And I was the start player. And, and yep. I was just like, if I take those two, this game's over. And I, I told the table that. I'm yeah. like, if I take this, I really think it's done. Let's reshuffle the tiles. Let's redistribute them and, and have a go. Yeah. <laughs> and so... I think that there are some tiles in the game that might be a little bit overpowered. And those two are the ones that most frequently seem to lead to a, a, maybe even a little bit of imbalance. Now, that being said, 
I have lost having one of those tiles, all right? It's not, but I think if you get both of them, you're like a juggernaut as far as building goes. It's really, really hard to stop somebody who's got both those tiles. So I have a little bit of an issue with that. Um, I have uh, uh, reservations about the components. Um, there are just some bad mistakes. You know, the, the score track is off. That's just, 67 is gone. You know, well, whatever. I mean, that's that's a printer error. It's not that big of a deal. But each of the uh, player colors is, you know, you have your workers, which are your discs, and then you have some discs. You have one disc that's supposed to be a, a lighter color. Well, my yellow was brown. <laughs> <laughs> and the the red was pink and the blue and the green were okay i think right they weren't too bad they weren't wanna, too bad but, i want to say maybe they were almost darker yeah 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 they, they just all right but it was but, yeah it, it was just kind of weird like yeah. i didn't understand that and then we also had an issue with the fact that um in addition to that problem um there's just kind of some uh, I had some like readability issues with just like looking at the board. Everything was this kind of pale kind of um, the, the kind of pale sort of pastel kind of color palette. Like things didn't always pop. Yeah. It made it kind of difficult um, for me to see um, that I had a little bit of an issue with um, just like weird little things like that. Did you, did you have any component issues that you were kind of unhappy with? Um, the, the only real big one I think for me was, uh, one of the player colors in the game is red. Oh yeah. 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 And one of the resource cubes that you're collecting is pink. And the pink was so close to yeah. that red that at one point, I think we just counted out the correct number of cubes for the red player just, and said, here you go. These are your player cubes. And yeah, the other, yeah. what was left, that was going to be the resources. Yeah, there was actually a difference. But what was weird is my wife started trying to sort them. And as she rotated the cubes, they were almost different shades of red on different sides of the cube. And so there was like no way to tell. Like you would start off looking at them and like, okay, these are red and those are pink. And then you would be done. You're like, I don't have enough reds. And then my wife started flipping the pinks, and she's like, "Well, now it looks red." <laughs> and so, yeah, that 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 was a bit of a that was a bit of a problem. I, I didn't understand that. And there was something on the player boards that we never figured out, and we never found. We we have this, it was the houses, these yeah. houses, and you, you know, you talked about moving your house along the, right. the the track, and for whatever reason, in like the first seven, maybe the first six numbered spots. There's two little like grayed out pictures of houses. Right. And then the next like five or six spots had a single grayed right. out picture of house. Right. And, and and the rules didn't really. Not in the English it. rule book. Now, I, I did email Uli, um, uh, you know, who's uh, the publisher uh, over at Spiel Works. Great guy who also sent a copy of the game for review. So thanks. Yeah. Uh, thanks to him. Um, uh, apparently, what those mean is that uh, when you get to those locations on the player mat, you don't move your house forward for building one building. You have to build two buildings, I guess, before you can move your house forward to the next. So it slows you down. So it's your house marker. Oh, wow. Right, and, and that was after we had played that game. Yeah. So your house marker can't... It's going to be extremely difficult to advance that house marker past, like, space seven or eight or nine, right? Almost impossible. Whereas in the game that we were playing, where we didn't see that, because I, I still cannot to this day. Now, it might still be in there, people, so if you can find it, please let me know. But Uli referenced the page number, and I, I read through that page. 
Paul uh, read through that page, another buddy of mine. Uh, we could find nothing, no mention of that house thing there at all. Uh, so I think it might have been like in the German rules and maybe didn't make it into the English rules that we had or, or whatever. But that, of course, would make a difference because we had our houses like up around 10, 11. I think one person had it up at 12. Yeah. And so if your house is going to be capped off at like 7 or 8 or 9, that's going to keep things a little bit closer, a little bit tighter. So uh, that was one of those kind of live and learn things and like an FAQ kind of a thing. That that doesn't surprise me. That's like a that's like a translation thing. Or it's just me missing it and Paul missing it and like everybody missing it. But I don't, I don't think we missed it. But if we did, you know, my apologies to, to Uli. And of course, you know, he uh, clarified that for me. So in future games, I was able to correct that. But the bottom line is is it's still not really intuitive and clear. The other problem I have is that the prestige that you gain that you mark on the main board track and the prestige that you gain on your player board both use the exact same icon. Yes, they do. And so that. to me, I would rather see two slightly different icons so that I know for sure. Where do I mark this prestige? On the main board? I might trigger scoring if I do. Or is it marked on my player board? If it's marked on my player board, huzzah. I mean, that's better because I'm going to get that every single round. It's not a right. one-shot benefit, right? So that's an incredibly important distinction in this game. And I'm pretty sure I have it right. I'm sure people will let me know if I don't. You know, Generally, on your individual player board, you're only going to get prestige from buildings that you have activated the prestige section of those buildings. Everything else, I think, is pretty much a one-shot kind of a benefit, right? But it would be so much better if they had just a different icon for it so that this way you knew for sure. There was no question, no doubt, no debate. So that, that's a missed opportunity there, I think. Um, other than that, I mean, the board is beautiful. It's big. Yes, it's huge. It the footprint of the game is enormous. Uh, the player aids are decent. They show you the cubes that you need for each type of building. The choices of buildings is not overwhelming because generally you have two choices per age. There are variations on the same theme. So you're either going to get more resources and uh, or a ton of prestige, or you're going to get some resources and some prestige versus like some prestige and some money or something like that. Like yeah. it, it, You're going to have like four different choices, basically, when you build a building of any given age. You're going to be able to look at that and say, okay, you know, this, this is what I can do with that. There's also another cool building that I liked in uh, the first age. It's a level zero building, actually. And that's one that allows you to get another worker, which is really cool. So that's going to, of course, extend your capabilities and give you more options every turn. So hats off to the game design, the gameplay. Really enjoy the gameplay. Uh, the rules, you know, there are a couple of things I really had questions with. The component issues we've talked about are a little bit of a negative, but not enough to keep me away from the game. So I really like Diluvia Project. Um, I'm hoping it gets picked up for wider North American distribution so that other people have a chance to play it. And maybe some of these little things can be fine-tuned and tweaked and things like that. Because, um, you know, there's just weird things. Like, as I'm sitting here talking about it, the round marker is this giant wooden black square it looks like an obelisk almost, yeah that's right? right and the obelisk is designed to sit perfectly on this chart that shows you know round one round two round three round four etc but if you put the obelisk on it it covers the reminder that if you build a level two building in turn two you get two <laughs> prestige points right around two population points right, not right. Even prestige population yeah. And so after a while, we like put that thing away and just use like a cube because right. we're like, I don't want to forget that. I don't want to block it. Um, the rule book shows a picture of a pawn. 
but yeah, in the box it's this giant obelisk and so there's just weird things like that i just it it, it kind of surprised me a little bit um that's not usually something that i see from spiel works so maybe we were supposed to whittle the pawn ourselves no <laughs> <laughs> it's a game and a craft it's a craft <laughs> it's an activity i'm gonna sit on the porch in my rocking chair with my whittling whittle knife i'm gonna whittle it <laughs> fetch me my whittling knife um, no, I think it was just a component replacement. Maybe the publisher, you know, the, not the publisher, maybe the printer did it. They're like, you know, ah, eh, you know, we don't have a pawn. Just put this big black square in there. <laughs> I don't know. It looks cool. Don't get it me wrong. Does. It stands out, but it totally is non-functional in what it needs to do in the game. So um, that's kind of our review. That's our take on Delubia Project. Great gameplay. Really interesting decisions. Uh, a novel, a couple novel mechanisms with your super worker, Bob, Bob. and with your, uh, or Beb, if it's up in the, the up in Boston, right? You got Bib. Bib. <laughs> Bib's in the can, in the, the garage. Can. <laughs> Get some beer. All right. <laughs> now everybody from New England's going to write in angry. <laughs> like, that's the worst New England accent I've ever heard. We're like, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, it probably yeah, is. Yeah, we know. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go back awesome. to Yoda. Exactly. No, don't do Yoda. <laughs> no, don't do awesome, Yoda. awesome gameplay. Uh, some weird component things, um, but really a good game. One that I definitely recommend. Would you recommend this one? Oh, absolutely. I I really enjoyed the game. I look forward to playing it again, and you know maybe actually being able to beat you. Yeah, yeah. Which would be fun. You can, you can live. You can dream. I can dream. You can dream a dream. I can be like the dude and stay in last place and just you know surpass you in the there end. There we go. That's true. <laughs> That was hard to take. That really was. <laughs> That's our review for Deluvia Project. So the next title that Lloyd and I are going to review tonight is another title from Spielworks. This was uh, sent in the same box as Deluvia Project, uh, courtesy of Uli. Thank you very much for sending those to us for review. Uh, this game is called Haithabu, or Haithabu, or something like that. I think it's Haithabu. I'm not really sure. Um, it's uh, published this year, 2015. Uh, designer of Wolfgang Heidenheim and Andreas Molter. Um, once again, we have the artist of uh, Harold Leisky. And this is a Spielworks game, once again, for two to four players, uh, published in uh, 2015, this year, with a playing time listed of 120 minutes. And I would say that's accurate. Um, yeah, it was pretty th close. The theme of this game is uh, it's uh, named after an important uh, trading settlement. And so we're kind of back in the time of the Vikings, and it's at the uh, southern end of the Jutland Peninsula, um, kind of on the border today between Denmark and Germany. I'm getting that off the Board Game Geek page. And uh, basically what you are trying to do is you are trying to engage in lively trade. Now, a lot of people have uh, kind of these preconceived notions of the Vikings. Um, you know, the, this group of people is these kind of raiders and pillagers and uh, things of that nature. And that is certainly true to an extent. However, if you uh, look at the history of, of these Nordic kind of people, uh, they were also traders. Uh, they were first and foremost traders. They traded uh, in the all, you know all the way to the Black Sea. They they traded, of course, uh, throughout Europe as well as raiding. Um, they were intrepid uh, explorers and seafarers.
seafarers. Um, just an amazing, interesting people. And so this game focuses more on trade than it does on the sort of stereotypical things that people think of when they think of Vikings, which is, you know, pillaging and plundering and... You know, Fuzzy helmets with horns. With helmets with <laughs> horns, which uh, uh, one of my uh, co-workers... Um, uh, that I worked with for years. Uh, her maiden name was Inga Magnus Dotter. Yes. Um, uh, she was from Iceland, and uh, she used to tell me with a very severe look and frown upon her face, <laughs> Vikings did not wear helmets with horns. That's a myth. She said um, Wagner destroyed the myth of the Vikings. <laughs> yeah, she really thanks blamed Wagner the, for yeah, a lot of that. Thanks yeah. to all the operas, you know. <laughs> Killed um, the Exactly. So... <laughs> Uh, God rest her soul. Uh, yeah, she used to uh, tell me a lot about Vikings and uh, her proud kind of heritage, uh, Icelandic heritage, which, of course, she traces back uh, to the Vikings. Of course, uh, uh, going back to, I guess, that would be Eric the Red, who who uh, went to uh, Iceland and then Greenland, I believe, and then uh, Leif Erikson later on. But anyway, uh, all the way over to North America. So really interesting group of people. But this game focuses more upon their trading kind of exploits. And so what you have here is basically a trading game. You have an economic game, all right? And it's listed that way as the category. Uh, and I think that that's certainly fair. Um, what you have is each player is basically representing a kind of, you know, Viking chief or elder. And you're attempting to establish your trade network. And so what you're going to be doing on the game is, is pretty standard kind of stuff. Uh, you're going to be attempting to gain resources. Um, you're going to then use those resources to fulfill contracts. Uh, the contracts are going to score you points. Um, in order to do this, however, you have a rather complex logistical sort of chain. So the first thing you have to do is you have to sort of uh, gather some resources. You have to kind of collect your raw materials. Once you've collected those raw materials, then the next thing you have to do is you have to find a way to transport them to your warehouse, okay? Um, I'm sorry. Um, no, you gather them to your warehouse, right, and then you, you transfer them to your uh, trading, uh, trading post. post. Yes, thank yes. you, Lloyd. So you got to transfer them to your trading post. This is done uh, via either wagon, cart, you know, whatever you want to call it. Overland is what I guess that would represent. Or it's being done by ship. Uh, each of these modes of transportation uh, will handle varying types of goods in, in different amounts. So, for example, you might have a ship that will transport three of anything you want plus, um, you know, two of one type of resource and one of another. And so... You have to kind of gather the resources for the contracts that you're trying to fill, but then you have to sort of try to get the modes of transportation that are going to take those resources from your warehouse to your trading post. Once they're at your trading post, the, the back end of the chain now, you're going to then be able to deliver those goods in order to fulfill the contracts and score your points. Any goods that you do not get out of your warehouse by the end of the round, okay, you actually have to pay like upkeep for. You know, like you gotta, you gotta like, you know, make sure that Doug and his buddy, you know, Frank, whatever. Doug and Frank. Those are great Viking are great names, Viking you know. Names. Doug and Frank. So you got like <laughs> Doug and Frank who are like men in the warehouse and they have to like make sure that nobody comes and like takes stuff and whatever and keep track of everything. Um, so. Whatever is in the warehouse, you kind of have to pay an upkeep fee if you don't manage to successfully get it transferred to your trading post. While it's in your warehouse, it doesn't really do you much good. You really have to get everything moved over to the trading post. And from there, you can either um, you know, take those resources and fill contracts or you can sell them mm -hmm. uh, for money because money is uh, very important in this game. The economy of the game is going to lead you to believe that money is very loose because you start off with like a huge amount of money. 
but everything in this game costs a lot of money and you also have very little money that's kind of gained from your contract so you have to be like really careful when you're getting your goods or gathering your resources, whatever you want to think of them as, uh, I like to think of them as goods, there's a central market on the board. And one of the things you can do is you can use one of your workers. Again, we have a worker placement sort of a thing here where you can send your workers to go and gather those resources. As many as you wish to buy, I think, what, what's the limit? Six or something like that? I, I forget what the limit was. I don't remember. Um, but you can you can store a maximum of 10 things in your warehouse. At the end of at your At the turn. end of your turn. Yeah, you can buy more than that during the turn if you can clear it out of there. But I think you can buy uh, up to a certain number of goods uh, as long as you can afford them. And the market price is going to fluctuate very nicely and neatly with the supply and demand. So as good comes in, uh, as stuff comes in, the, the price is going to go down. As uh, stuff is uh, purchased, the price is going to go up because now the good is more rare. Um, so that all works really well. And there's a very clever mechanism in the game at the end of each round where depending on where the sort of price is on each particular good at the end of a round, you're going to roll some dice that are going to modify that price either up or down or keep it the same. If the uh, good is in the upper end of the sort of price range, most of your dice rolls are going to push it down. It's going to be rare that it comes up even further. And if you're in the bottom half kind of of that price range, uh, a lot of your dice rolls are going to push it up a little bit. They're going to nudge it up. So that's kind of nifty. You also have a very interesting kind of a roll selection kind of, it's not so much a roll selection, but like a privilege selection that are represented by these different kind of roles that you can choose as one of your actions during the game. And so these are um, roles that are going to give you some sort of a benefit. So, for example, you have one, uh, what is it, like the stevedore. Uh, this person is going to be able to, when you transport goods um, from your warehouse to your trading post, is going to let you transport extra, up to two more, yeah, right? up to two more. Um, you have another guy that gives you a discount on these neutral workers that you can buy to help you. They'll give you the neutral workers for half price. Normally, I think they're $40 and $20, yeah. which is rather expensive. But this guy, if you take this role, will give it to you at half price. And so there's a very interesting mechanism by which you can buy these privileges. I think of them more as privileges, where maybe they're like characters they that you characters, hire. They were characters, yeah, something like that. These guys are going to give you a benefit. Um, and, and the round that you purchase them, you put a little token on them to say that they're safe. Um, because others that you've acquired from previous rounds are eligible to be lured away. <laughs> so when you go and you sort of select this action... Um, to uh, get yourself a new kind of a, a, a person, you know, uh, to come and work with you. Uh, you can either take someone that hasn't been selected because there's a display of them. Or you can lure away, if you pay some money, you can lure away some uh, something that someone else has that they had acquired in a previous round. So you can't, like, lock any of these guys down except for the round that you initially acquire them in. And that's kind of clever. I like that. Because if you see someone is really working an advantage you can take that advantage away from them and uh, really kind of hamper them for the future. There's another one that will let you like adjust the price of goods, you know, up or down, etc. Um, all kinds of interesting choices there. The main part of the game, however, is not necessarily the market or those people, or those personages or roles that you can purchase. Um, it's a sort of a rondelle mechanism. It's a, it's a, a round kind of a turntable. 
And instead of you moving your worker on the turntable, the turntable is actually going to move on its own in between turns. It's going to rotate. It's like a clock. It's going to tick one hour, yeah. if you want to think of it that way, each turn. And it's divided into the light side and the dark side. <laughs> Since we're on a Star Wars theme, it's on the dark side. <laughs> so the dark side is fraught with peril and all sorts of problems and things that could happen. And the light side is risk-free. So if the action that you're looking for is on the light side, well, huzzah. You just take one of your workers and you put it on that slice of the rondelle. It's like a you know pie-shaped you know pieces like normal, and you take that action. So it might be uh, buy transport vehicles, or it could be um, you know a, a different action like hire a person, or it could be uh, sell sell a good or you know a type of good or something. So there's all these different spaces. If it's on the dark side, the night side, however then you're going to have to do what's called roll this event die. And the event die is going to do a few different things. It's either going to have no effect whatsoever, or it's going to give a benefit to you, or it's going to give a punishment to you for taking this risk of, of traveling at night or doing this business at night or whatever you want to try to thematically wrap uh, your mind around with it. Um, and you can purchase, I think, for 20 bucks a second die, and that, that way you're rolling two dice, and you get to choose one of the two results uh, that you rolled to kind of like an insurance policy, right? So it kind of reminds me a little bit of like Manila in that way. You're like purchasing insurance. So all of these things are going on in the game. You're putting out your workers. You're possibly hiring a neutral worker. Um, another interesting thing is if, if I select a action on the rondelle, I cannot then select that action again unless I use a neutral worker because technically a neutral worker is a different color. Um, and so if I'm the first one to put a neutral worker on, I, I might actually be able to do the same action twice which is pretty cool. Once with a neutral worker, and you must use the neutral worker first, and then with my own worker. But if you, Lloyd, had used a neutral worker on that space previously, I can't then put another neutral worker because that would be doubling uh, of the same uh, pawn of the same color. So little interesting rules like that, that that were really kind of fun to kind of mess around with. Um, so the game is one that really requires you to seriously plan like you really have to you have to look at a contract you have to look at the goods you might already have in your warehouse or what you think you can reasonably get for a reasonable price you have to then look at the available transportation cards that are up there uh, and one of the the great cards uh, that you can buy as one of your roles lets you peek at like the top three from both stacks the wagon stack and the ship stack and then you you get to pick which one you want and then you only pay half price you know so there's cool things like that, but you must match the transportation to the goods in your warehouse so that you can get them over to um, you know the area that you need to trading post so that you can fulfill your contracts and do all of that other good stuff. So um, that's kind of like a, a brief overview of the game. So now that we've kind of gotten through an overview, um, let's talk a little bit about the gameplay itself and, and how we felt about it. So, um, you know, the first thing I want to say is that as an economic logistics game, it was, it was interesting. It had some interesting ideas in it that I, that I liked. It was incredibly challenging. Like, this was not an easy game, and it's all because of that logistics puzzle. Proper transportation 
you know, the, for the right goods, for the right contract at the right time, and then having workers available to then make the, the, the completion of the sale, you know, fulfill the contract. These are all things that were very challenging to do and a lot of fun. Where I kind of have a concern, I, I had two kind of concerns with the game. One of them was a nitpicky thing, and the other one is, is a major thing. Um, the nitpicky thing I want to cover first, which is, uh, for some reason, I've seen a lot of games with wheels and dials in them. And for some reason, this game required me to, like, bust out the hot glue gun. <laughs> yep. And I had to, like, take these, like, cardboard discs and glue them to the main board, which instantly makes me shudder. And then, like, glue this other thing to this thing and then put these plastic discs down and then put the platter over top that's the rondelle so that it'll spin. And then I'm supposed to glue another piece on top to lock it down. And, oh, by the way, make sure that you have the English side up or the German <laughs> side up you know, before you glue it down. Right. You know, listen, I it, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, I actually didn't glue the cap on. You know, I just kind of glued it so it would spin. And uh, but I, I was kind of surprised like, you know, to me, I've seen so many games where there's a punch out and there's like that little plastic connector thing that kind of goes through the board, you know, that that kind of snaps together and anchors it and lets it spin. And I was like, you know, again, I, I, I was kind of like, huh, you know, not a big deal. But in this day and age, I kind of thought to myself, this is odd. Like, it, I, I, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect to have to, like, do any kind of work like that, because to me, there's so many people out there that are so picky you know, if I glue that slightly off center or wrong or something, and then, you know, uh, if I ever decide to, you know, share the game after I've played it a while, you know, with someone else, you know, they're going to be, oh, you glued that wrong. That doesn't look right. Or, you know, ah, I don't know. I just, I don't like the hassle of that. Um, but again, that's a nitpick. Totally work to glue it together. All of the pieces that you're, are required are there. It was no big deal whatsoever. Um, but it just kind of struck me as a little strange. I, you know, I, I've gotten so many games where they these little wheels snap together. That struck me as odd. My biggest concern with the game, what really kind of... Um, I'm not going to say killed it for me, but it came close to killing it on the first play, was the die roll. Um, a lot of people have talked about the die roll. And here's the thing. I don't mind the die roll, even in a heavy economic euro kind of game like this. I don't care. I don't mind if there's a little randomness infused in there. I don't mind any of that. Here's what I don't like. This is where I kind of, you know, got off uh, my the, the, the bandwagon on this, was when you roll the die, you're rolling the die because you chose to go to the night side of the board, wherever that, you know, the, the rondelle, the action selection mechanism. If I'm doing that, that is supposed to represent risk. Like, I have taken a risk. And so, therefore, I think I would have no problem with rolling a die that says either I was rewarded, you know, for taking that risk. Like, I slipped past the pirates, take one more good than, you know than you were attempting to transport. It's like, woohoo, you know, like something cool like that. Or I accept the loss. Heavy seas at night make navigation difficult. You know, you run your ship aground, you've lost a ship. Totally get that. Like that, that would make total sense to me. What, what really turned me off was the fact that I can choose to go to a night action selection space and then I can roll a die and I can hurt you. 
Like, and so I can, like, it's like a take that thing where it's like, haha, you know, I decided to do this at night and therefore you have to give me a good or a victory point or $10. Or, hey, I went and, and uh, uh, you know, delivered my goods in, in the, the deep of night. And guess what? You just lost a boat. Or you just lost a wagon. It's like, I, I don't I don't get that. Like, and that that really, I got to tell you, on the on the receiving end of that in a game that is so tight and tense where every single cube matters where i barely have enough of this good to transport and then my ship goes away and now my whole round is sunk or i had everything in my warehouse but it says i lose a cube and I didn't have any extras, right? And so now I'm not going to be able to send that shipment out because now I got to wait until I get another mead so that I can put that in the warehouse and then ship. And I just, I, it really rubbed me the wrong way. Like, why am I being punished because you took a risk? To me, in a game like this, I think if you want to take a risk, you're the one that's taking the risk. You're the one that should be maybe punished or slapped around a little bit. But why I, as like another player sitting somewhere else, should, should suddenly suffer this misfortune? Be, and I had no control over it. I didn't choose to do that. I'm not the one that did that. But because you rolled a die and it said number five, I have to give you this stuff. It's like, what, what is that all about? So, you know, I, I, I enjoyed the game except for that. That part of it really kind of stuck uh, stuck out to me and and it was something that did not sit well with me so what were your impressions of the game uh lloyd what, what did you think how did you feel about the different aspects and, and parts and components and whatnot of the game well i definitely agree with um that night side idea and you know that was one of the things that initially bothered me too because you and i and carter played this and carter had a role or a character that yeah. let him get a free extra die every time he went to the night side. Right. So he was always rolling two dice and he would be like, oh, number one, Viking games. Everybody give me something. And it's like, I just got what I needed. Right, that, right, right. You know, and... And, and then so, even when we took that character away from him, he still just happened to roll that way. Right, he would still just happen to roll that way. So, I mean, f from that aspect of it that took a lot of the fun out of it for me because you and i just kept getting hit by it over and over, over and again over. yeah um but you know another thing that you know i i really appreciated the way the market worked yeah, yeah because it totally made sense um i liked the fact that you could put one of your pawns at the bottom of a market track and buy like as many of that as you wanted or you could go over to the Rondell, and there were spots on the Rondell where you could buy between one and three either unique or different right, resources. Right. Yep. So you got a nice little choice as to where you were going to get your resources from those cubes. So if I really needed to get different types of resources, I'm not going to concern myself with going to the bottom of a resource track. I'm going to go to the Rondell. But if I have a contract that I need maybe four or five of the same type of cube, I'm just going to go very naturally right to that resource. That market, yeah. And that market, and I can just get all of them at once. Right, right. Now, the the, the thing, though, that really troubled me about the game, um, as far as moving from your warehouse 
to your trading post, um, you know, this is essentially like a recipe filling game. You've getting the, you get these contracts that have a, a set number of each type of resource that might be required. And the thing that bothered me the most is that I was never really able to get ships or wagons that had the exact same type of recipe. So now if I want to get everything that I've collected in my warehouse over to my trading post, I'm not even going to be able to do that all in one round because yeah, when yeah. you go to that spot on the rondelle, you may use one oh, ship yeah, yeah. or you may use one wagon. I don't know how many times I forgot that during the and, game and you'd be like, uh, 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 I'm like, no, I'm like no, no, it's one or the other. So even though you might have collected all of these cubes and they're sitting there in your warehouse uh, until you get another ship or right. you get a ship and a wagon. Right. You you're still gonna need at least two actions to get all of that over. Right. And for me, I found that money was extremely tight in the game. Now you're allowed to take a hundred dollar loan at any point in the game. Right. You have to pay it back at two hundred bucks. Hundred percent interest. And if you don't, that's usury, my friend. That is. <laughs> and at the end of the game, if you don't pay it back, that's minus ten yeah. points. I know. That I was know. like half of my score if I, I had done that. <laughs> it was. I never took a loan because it would have been disastrous. It's terrifying, yeah. I'm used to like, you know, and, 100 oh, payback, 125 or 150, yeah. even 150, but 200 was like, wow. Especially when you're sitting there trying to fulfill a contract that's going to give you 80 bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, or wow. Yeah, or maybe yeah. even 100. So, I mean, I found that the only way to get money in this game is either by fulfilling a contract... But that still means all those cubes had to have been delivered to your trading post. Yes. Which means you had to buy the transportation. Or you can sell them outright, again, on a spot on that rondelle. Right. Or by going to the market um, area. You can sell them outright, but they still have to be in your trading post. Yeah, that was the part that killed me too. They still have to be transported. So I hit a point in the game where I had like 10 bucks. I couldn't even buy the cheapest wagon or the cheapest ship. And I spent an entire round of actions just going to spots on the rondelle and taking a victory point. Right. Or going to a spot and saying, and I pass because I can't do that anyways. I have no money. Right. Right. And it just, it, it, it seemed like my game grinded to a halt at one point. And then I never recovered from it because Carter would just steal stuff anyways. And it was like, oh my goodness, when is this game over? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's it's one that it's it's interesting enough. I I want to give it a shot again, mostly because I want to beat the boy, and you know I want to have that victory over Carter. Everybody wants but to beat the boy. I do, and uh, you know I kind of want to stick it to him, and maybe he'll have some of those die rolls in my favor. Yeah. Um, didn't work for me. But didn't no, work for it me didn't. When we did that again. Yeah, no, didn't work and, for me. And uh, you know, I I just. Ooh, I had a lot of problems with trying to get yeah. the whole delivery yeah, system yeah. set up because you only have three of those workers each round. Yeah. And if you buy a fourth one, well, that's 40 bucks right there for the first guy. Yeah. yeah. It's it's really, really tough. It's very tough and it's very tight. And I, I, I mean, I, I know you and I both looked at the rule book a couple of times. Yeah. Because I kept thinking, like, why can't I sell from my warehouse? Like, to me, 
If I'm transporting goods to fill a contract, thematically, that makes sense to me. But, you know, the financial world for years has, you know, just operated on buy low, sell high, you know. So to me, if I buy, you know, a bunch of cloth or something and the price for cloth fluctuates and goes up a few ticks, um, it would be nice if I could just sell it from my warehouse and uh, get a lot of money from it which would then allow me some flexibility with buying an additional worker or uh, buying that second die or, uh, you know, doing something different or, or buying another type of resource that I need. Um, so I totally agree with you. I, I think that um, unless this is another like translation kind of issue, it seemed very clear to me in the rule book that you, you must have it in your trading post. And it says right on your player board. That yes. you can sell or fulfill contracts from your trading post and nothing from your warehouse. And so, I read that in like three right. spots in the rule book. Right. You may not sell from where you're, from your warehouse. Right. And so to me, you know, the the interesting thing, like I kept trying to cry. Like we had uh, in in both games that I did, we had a, a market that was fairly low most of the time, and so it wasn't even like I tried to do the math a few times. Like okay, if I if I sell these goods to fulfill the contract, I'm gonna get 120 bucks. If I just sell the goods outright, can I make more than $120? Because if I can make more than $120, I don't care about fulfilling the contract. I'll just sell. But it never worked out that way. Like the math never mm -mm. worked in my favor where it was like, okay, it would make more sense for me just to sell these resources and make money that way. Like it was just, it didn't, it didn't work. You, you needed to fulfill those contracts. Um, and so to me... You know, I found the game, like I said, engaging. I found it uh, enjoyable, but that that die roll killed it for me. Like mm -hmm. that 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 really kind of uh, put a damper on my enthusiasm for it. You know, and I'm fine with brutal games. I mean, you know, I've I've played Antiquity, for example. We mentioned Splatter games earlier. Yeah. You and I, like the first couple oh, games we goodness. played, like we were just overcome by graves. Like yeah, it's just like pretty the, much the landscape's polluted. Everybody's <laughs> dead. There's no room in your city, and it's like, well, I guess we got to start over again. Like yep. you know, you just got kicked in, you know, in in uh, the nether regions, um, you know, by that game. And then you know, I, I've played other games. Uh, you know, uh, a colonialism is very, very tight and brutal. Arkwright, really, really tight, uh, can be very cutthroat. Um, so many games, Age of Steam. It's not that I'm like faint-hearted. You know what I mean? What I don't like is getting kicked around when I feel I didn't do anything and it was it was it was a result of another player's risk taking like it just didn't make any sense to me. So that's really my my problem with the game. Everything else I can deal with like the logistical puzzle you're talking about, the uh way that you can only use either a wagon or a ship like that was very challenging. I would have liked it better if I could have used both at the same time. Um you know, but I could deal with that. Like all of that I could deal with. I love the way the market works. It's very cool. It reminds me of uh, one of the markets that I tried to develop for my own game, Black Diamonds. Um, I, I tried a market like that and I totally could not make it work because I didn't have that die roll on the side that would then readjust the market after the supply and the demand phase. That was brilliant. Yeah. From a design standpoint, that solves that problem. I had to find a whole different solution. And I really admire and respect the way that market works. Um, I love a rondelle. Any kind of rondelle, I love. I just don't want to get slapped around for your choices. And so for me, that's why I have to give this game kind of a cautionary sort of a, um, a recommendation. 
Um, I, I really think if you are okay with randomness, this might still be too much for you because of everything we've talked about. So I would definitely say, you know, check it out. It's, it's worth checking out. Um, but you may want to try it first because your tolerance level might not be high enough to handle uh, th those die rolls that can happen. So that would be what I would have to say about uh, uh, Haithabu. Did you have any uh, anything, final thoughts? I would just say that, you know, we've talked about and we've reviewed games where we've said, you know, you're, you're kind of fighting the game and the game kind of fights you back. Yeah. And this is definitely a game that's going to fight you back, but it's more like a street fight. It like it doesn't feel like the rules are really in your favor sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. You, you kind of feel like it's stacked against it's, you a little it's, bit. Yeah. It's almost stacked against you. And it, you know, for me, I, I don't mind fighting against an engine of a game and really working. Right. But this one, I mean, it, it, it felt like it was fighting kind of dirty. <laughs> and uh, I don't like it when it fights dirty. No, no, Especially no. when it's dirty in somebody else's favor. I know, and I'm like, yeah, why yeah. is Carter winning now? I know, I know. Uh, he always wins. He always wins. He won by one point. We played Lords of Zidit today. He won by <laughs> one point in the third scoring. Uh, we played yeah, well, that. but we played ships today though, and I got the boy. I got him. Oh, I got him by you? like ten points. I got oh, nice. Him. I got him. It was good. He played a good game. You know, I mean, geez, he's he's like what? Is he eleven, twelve, something? He's eleven. He's your kid. I don't he's know. eleven. <laughs> he's eleven. And I mean, the fact that he can play that well, I'm very proud of him. But uh, I did get him in ships today. I did manage to to get him ship. But we're gonna have to have a rematch on that one. But uh, he still likes Saitabu because uh, you know he's he's won the the game uh, the times we played it. So yeah. Um, and I think if the die rolls are going your way, most the of the time it's game's fun. It's going to be great. <laughs> but if it's not, give me more stuff. Yeah, if it's not, it's <laughs> like you know, this is not, this is not for me. So uh, that's our uh, review, and those are our thoughts about the new Spielworks title, Haithabu, if I'm saying that correctly, by Wolfgang Heidenheim and Andreas Molter, uh, art by Harold Leisky, uh, published by Spielworks Games. we're going to talk about tonight is another game from dr finn and this game is called cosmic run uh, this is actually designed by uh, steve finn and his son seamus finn um this is uh, art by lawrence vander oh my goodness i'm gonna butcher this this is dutch vander meer i'm gonna go with it's m-e-r-w-e i don't know what to do with the w so I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to say Vandermeer and hope I'm okay. Um, Silent W. Silent like W. <laughs> I've never heard of that before, but maybe it is. Like uh, the word right. Yes, yes. Thank you very much. You thank haven't you. heard of it. The That's fifth grade right. teacher That's hasn't heard true. of it. That's true, yes. Well, but the you music know. guy knows yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the drummer one of, knew it. One of the, the drummer. That's even worse. <laughs> so this was put out by Dr. Finn's Games uh, 2015. It's for one to four players. Uh, it lasts about 30 minutes. Um, and th this is another game that is kind of uh, a game that I have come to sort of expect from Steve Finn and now from his son, Seamus Finn. These are tight, solid little games, you know? And, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. They're, they're tight, solid, and they're small. 
in that they're focused. You know what I mean? Since you talk about school and, and, and me being a teacher, like one of the things we look at with students in their writing is when they write, are they focused? Do they maintain their focus or do they kind of stray? Do they wander? Uh, do they get off point? Do they kind of go down a blind alley? Do they kind of, you know, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, Steve Finn games are always super focused. They're like laser-like focused. They do what they do. They do it very well. They're mechanically extremely sound. They play in a short playtime. And they really just uh, are, are wonderful, wonderful little engines in these games. And I really, really find that I enjoy almost all of his games. I even found an old copy of Trial of Socrates. Remember you and I played oh, that? Oh, yeah. I yeah, remember yeah, yeah. that. I got that. Yeah. That's a clever little game. Yeah. Like, I, I I loved that. You know, that was neat. I wish that would be reprinted. So get on that, uh, Steve. Um, <laughs> so Cosmic Run is an interesting little game. You have uh, basically five little boards that depict five different planets. And planet one, two, three, four, five. And there's some nice little artwork that goes along with it. And each of the planets you are going to attempt to discover. You're going to attempt to discover these planets. You have uh, a little marker that represents sort of your ship or, or your progress towards the discovery of that planet that goes on the bottom of each of these boards. And so you have planet one, planet two, three, four, and five. There's no planet six. And you have uh, dice that you're going to roll. This is a dice kind of a game. What you're going to do on your turn is you're going to roll the dice. And the first thing you're going to do is you're going to consult a little chart. Very handy. It's right on a player aid, uh, depending on the number of players. And if the sum of the two dice that you roll, and there are different colors so you can see, because you're rolling a whole handful of dice. But if the sum of the two dice that you roll is equal to or greater than a certain amount, then you look at another die. Okay, it's I believe it's the two red dice and then there's a blue die. You're going to look at another die. If the blue die... Um, is say like a number three and the threshold is an eight. So if I roll an eight or higher combined on the red dice, then planet three, the blue die, is going to get hit with an asteroid. Okay? And if a planet ever gets hit three times, it's wiped out. So there's a race aspect here because every time you roll the dice, you're going to be allocating those dice to move your ship closer and closer to discovering this planet. And so... It really works in kind of like a uh, almost a poker kind of a fashion, right? So uh, for the first planet, uh, you basically need any die. Any die of any value, you can allocate that die and you're going to move your ship one up on these tracks. There's like tracks going up to each planet. Some of them are long. Mm -hmm. Some of them are quite short, okay? So the ones that are lower, like the, the planet one, two, they have a, a quite a few spaces you have to work your way through. And if you can discover the planet, you're going to uh, gain a, a lot of victory points. Um, if you are not the person who made it to the planet, if you get far enough along the tracks, you will score some victory points anyway, right? So some of the uh, secondary, tertiary uh, spaces also are worth victory points as well. If you don't move at all and you never try to discover the planet, you could lose. Yeah. You could lose victory points, right? So the first planet, you just need any die, and you'll move your ship up one. The second planet, you need a pair, okay? The third planet, you need three of a kind. The fourth planet, you need four of a kind. And the fifth planet, you need five of a kind. So there's it's, it's going to be very difficult to move up on the, the higher number of planets, but there's fewer spaces in which you have to move. Um, so how do you get five of a kind just rolling dice? Well, of course, it's not just going to be left to luck. There is a whole stack of cards that are alien cards, and there are, I think, five or six different kinds of aliens. 
I don't recall exactly. No, 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 no. There's more than four. I think there's like you know there's like the green, the the red, the purple, the yellow, the blue. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there's like five. There's either five or six. So there's going to be a flop of uh, three alien cards up at any time, and you can also use dice to kind of purchase or recruit these aliens who will come and work for you. And the aliens do all of the things that you would normally expect. They can help you modify die rolls. They can give you extra re-rolls. They can um, turn one uh, die into any number. Or it can change a specific number into a different number, etc. And so you can recruit these aliens and they're going to come uh, to your tableau in front of you. And you may never have more than one of the same type of alien in front of you at any time. But... Once you use that alien's ability, either one time, if it's a one-off, some of them will let you use them two or three times. You actually rotate the card as you use them, which is, which is clever. Yeah, I like really that. Cool. I've seen that uh, in other games. Uh, you rotate the card, and then once you've used all their abilities, they go in like a discard pile. So at the end of the game, there's a whole set collection thing where depending on the number of different types of aliens that you have recruited, that you have worked with, you're going to get X number of victory points, and that's really cool too. So you have that whole set collection aspect. It kind of reminds me of the nobles in St. Petersburg. So you got that going on. Those uh, aliens represent dice mitigation that are going to help you with the planets as you move up the tracks. So the way the game works is very simple. You take that fistful of dice, you roll them. You look and see whether a comet or an asteroid is going to hit a planet. And if so, what number? And if, if not, then you're going to take all of your dice, including those dice, and you're going to allocate them to cards or allocate them to planets. Or you have your own little personal tech board. Yeah. And you can allocate it to that. And that's kind of an interesting thing. It's like you build up a charge. You have like a little marker. And every time you assign a die, it can be of any value. You move that marker up one space with increasingly good benefit until you use it. When you use it, it's kind of like a free action. Um, and it... it it totally discharges so you can use it for wherever the cube is or whatever was before it that you had passed but once you use it it resets to zero and you got to build up your charge again so mm -hmm. that's kind of interesting that's a whole other economy there and then finally there are these like mining tokens okay they're like these gems and you can try to collect those gems you can collect alien cards that will give them to you uh, if you roll a full set, one, two, three, four, five, like six or whatever, if you get that natural kind of complete straight, you get one automatically. Um, and so your personal tech card will also let you go mining as well at like level three and level five or level three and six or something like that. Yeah, something like that. These are just for straight victory points. They're variable between one and three. I think it's between one and three. One and three. And so I've played this game many, many times. You can totally win by discovering planets and scoring points. You can totally win through mining. You can totally win through alien set collection. There's just so many different things going on, but all of them work really, really well. So would I say there's anything earth-shatteringly new in here? No. I've seen a lot of these elements before. And I know that sounds like a terrible thing to say. But sometimes I think, you know, we're always looking for something totally new and innovative. And it doesn't, it's not required to make a really, really good game. And this is a really, really good game. It fits a nice niche. It fills a great time frame. 
as a first design by uh, Steve's son. I think it's awesome. It's better than I could have done it at any age, uh, let alone his age. And I think he probably had a blast doing it with his dad. Um, I think the novel mechanic here is that is that asteroid strike. Yeah. Because then it's not just like you have that uncertainty. It's like I'm working my way up this track, but these stupid asteroids keep slamming into this planet. And if this planet blows up, before I get there, I'm, you know, I've kind of wasted my time or I'm not going to get the full effect because obviously reaching the planet gives you the greatest reward and benefit. And then it's kind of, it's out of play. Like it's protected from asteroid attack. Yep. But every time you discover a planet by reaching it, you, that threshold, that die threshold number comes down. So it gets more and more likely that planets are going to be hit. So... I think the novel part of this game, if there really is something, is that timing mechanism. It's really interesting. It adds uncertainty. You can't just math it out. You don't know how long you have. It's going to be different from game to game. And it's very simple because those fistful of dice that you roll, you got three of them that are a different color. And, you know, those three dice, the two red, the blue, add this whole other element to the game. And then you ignore the color and you use them just for their pip value. And that was a really, really neat idea. Um, everything else, you know, I've seen variations before, you know, of this uh, in many different games. But when you put all this together in a really tight package like this, you get a really solid game. And one that is easy to teach, easy to play. I can play it on a school night with the kids. Really enjoy this game quite a bit. Uh, what are your impressions about it, Lloyd? I would just echo everything that you said. I mean, this is such a fun little game. And that's the other nice thing about it, is it is small. It's just a tiny footprint. You've got these nice little boards for the planets, but they're they're not any larger than they need to be. Right. They're just the right size to keep those, um, those ships for each of the players on them. The tracks on them are nice and clear. And then, you know, when you get to that planet, you just flip that token or that flip th that, board, flip that yeah. board over. And it's got some nice artwork on the back. And, you know, you can see that you've... Everything's like grayed out. Everything's yeah, yeah, yeah. grayed out. Um, I was just really impressed with a, another dice game that, you know, is kind of new and fresh for me. Because I like dice games. And I, I love the whole race aspect of it. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, most racing games, you think of everybody on, you know, a single track going for a single purpose. In this game, you're actually racing in five different spots, right? which right. is pretty cool, because if I see that you're spending a lot of time racing towards maybe planet number one and planet number two, I might just choose to get up enough on those tr those uh, tracks where I'm not going to lose any victory points. Right. And I can then focus on maybe planet three or four or even five right, if I'm right. feeling lucky. Um, and then, of course, all the alien cards, like you said, just anytime you've got dice, there's there's got to be some way to kind of change your luck and, mitigate, and yeah. mitigate your luck and to modify those dice. And with those alien tech cards, yeah. I mean, they, they're just very clever yep. and you get an interesting flop every time because you don't know what's going to be out there yeah. and... Reminded me a little bit of uh, Alien Frontiers. Yeah, you know, those, exactly. Those, those cards that, you know, so many of those cards were really designed just to mitigate dice rolling right. for you, right? But I also like the addition that you can't have more than one of the same kind That's, in front of you. Yes. I thought that was kind of neat because, you know, with that restriction, I don't know how many times I played it where 
an alien, you know, card will flop up. I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally want to get that. And I'm like, oh, wait, I already got a yellow one in front of me. It's like, dang it. I got to use that to clear a room for that. And I guess because they're jealous of each other. Or something. <laughs> they don't work well together. They don't work well together. <laughs> they're from the same planet, but they don't like each other. Maybe it's the same dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's his clone. So anyway, uh, yeah, so I kind of like that. That's an interesting, it's, it's kind of mechanical, you know, like I don't understand exactly why I can't have two of the same in front of me, but it works. It works. Like it mm-hmm. adds a, a decision point, a tension point in the game that I really kind of appreciate. Um, so overall, you know, I would have to say that as a 30 minute, and it really is, it's about a 30 yes, minute filler of a game. This game is really quite good. Like I, I find that I enjoy it. My wife enjoys it. The boy enjoys it. Um, again, I can teach it easily. It's easy to play. It's abstracted. It's not like super thematic. I mean, other than the asteroid thing, the asteroid the thing asteroid really does feel great. kind of thematic. Yeah. I love the asteroid. Um, so yeah, these little tokens with these flaming balls of fire slamming <laughs> into the planet. I kind of like that. And you get to cue Aerosmith at one point to start yeah. playing the music <laughs> yeah. for you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Don't want to close my eyes. <laughs> because that's when the asteroid hits. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I really like it. I, I find that this is a, a game that I, I think I'm going to keep. A lot of his games I keep because, th- like I said, they're lean and mean. Like, these are games that are really mechanically sound, quick, simple, and yet there's always something meaty, some kind of interesting decision, risk-reward, risk-management, a s- stock thing like Biblios. or you know, There's always something interesting. Um in, in all of his games, whether it's the Institute for Magical Arts, which we've reviewed, or or any of these others of his, uh, Capo di Capi, you know, there's so many decision points in these games, but they're small, they're quick, and really enjoyable. So I'm, I'm definitely giving Cosmic Run a thumbs up. Uh, how about you? Oh, definitely. Same thing. Uh, totally a thumbs up. I'm ready to play it again anytime. Sounds good. Maybe we'll play it tonight with the boy. Sounds good. So I can crush him. Yes. You must crush him. I must crush him with an asteroid. <laughs> Rain fire from the heavens upon him. Yeah, come here. Listen to the lamentations of the women. Uh. <laughs> or just the children. The children. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a tumor. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's big enough. It could be. <laughs> That's right. It's kindergarten cop, right? All right, anyway, uh, once again, we've strayed off topic, but uh, that's our review for a fun game by uh, Steve and Seamus Finn, Cosmic Run. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode of The Long View. Of course, I want to thank my co-host, Lloyd Keller, uh, for being on the show tonight. Thanks, Lloyd. Hey, you're welcome. And, of course, I want to thank everybody out there for listening. And, of course, I want to thank my sponsor, GameSurplus.com, for their continued support. Uh, If anybody is going to be getting Deluvia Project and uh, Hithabu in as an import, you know it's going to be Velma over at GameSurplus.com. So uh, go and check out all that they have to offer at www.GameSurplus.com. And if you do order from them, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. I, of course, want to send out thanks to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. If you're in the Northeast PA region, stop on by. Lloyd and I are there doing demos every Monday night. So stop by the Gamer's Edge and see all that they have to offer. Thanks to the Dice Tower. The Longview is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, so go and check out Dicetower.com to see all of the amazing resources and sister podcasts on the network. So for Lloyd Keller and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening, and have a great night.